If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 16. Uh, I believe it's page 846 in your pew Bible. This is likely a, a passage that you're familiar with. Uh, if you're not, that's okay. But uh, it's when Jesus invites the little children to come into his midst. Uh, the disciples rebuke him, or rebuke the, the kids for coming, and Jesus very angrily says, No, I want them to come into my midst. Uh, the scriptures, the gospels in particular, talk very often about the kingdom of God. This is one of the kingdom of God passages that we look at um, and consider. Uh, the kingdom is not really this spatial place as it is a working. Wherever the, the will and the law of the king is being, King Jesus being obeyed, there the kingdom is. It, uh, the church is used to grow the kingdom, but the church is not the kingdom itself. And so when we come to this passage today, it's what is the attitude of the kingdom? What is, what is the disposition of someone who would like to be a part of the kingdom of God? Uh, well, we can look to children to understand that better. Let me now read for us uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would come and that you would teach us your word. Lord, that we would understand this, that we would have the heart and the attitude of a child as we come to you. That we would be childlike in our faith. We would see that we have great need and we depend on you for all things. Lord, the very faith that you require of us, we are to receive it as a gift from you. Lord, now would you teach us from your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The following are six little notes that little children have written to their pastor. Not pastors here, but just pastors somewhere, okay? Pastor, would you please, in your sermon next Sunday, say that Pete Peterson has been a good boy all week? Sincerely, Pete Peterson. <laughs> Arnold, age eight, says, Pastor, I know that God loves everybody, but I don't think he's ever met my sister. Little girl, age nine, says, Pastor, I really think we should, a lot more people would come to our church if we would just move it to Disneyland. Alex, age 10, says, Pastor, would you please say a prayer for our Little League team? We really, needs God, we really need God's help, or we need a new pitcher. <laughs> Josh, age 10, says, My father says that I should learn the Ten Commandments, but I don't think I want to because we have enough rules in the house already. And lastly, my favorite, Ralph, age, age 11, says, Pastor, I really liked your sermon on Sunday, especially when it was over. <laughs> Kids will say the most interesting and hilarious things. We could add many to this, I'm sure. My son, Nathan, our five-year-old, declared to Lauren and me about two months ago that when he wants to grow up, he wants to be a, quote, bachelor. Bachelor is what he's trying to say, but he says bachelor. That's, what, that's the pinnacle right now in his mind of what to be in life is a bachelor. Uh, we'll try to address that in due time. Kids say hilarious and funny things. They are also a great blessing to us. The scriptures are clear of that. Psalm 127 says that children are a heritage from the Lord. Matthew chapter 21 verse 16 says that out of the mouths of infants you have prepared or ordained praise. Psalm chapter 8 verse 2, out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes. 
Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not surprising that children are very important. <laughs> they're important for because they're blessings and we're to be stewards of them as their gifts to us, but they are blessings and, and important for us because of the future even of our church. We need to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as the scriptures say. Very often we have a baptism and the kids will come up here and, and Chip will talk about the promises and give us the background of, of why we do this and why we baptize our children. And then he will turn to the parents and ask them to affirm three vows. Here's the third vow that we ask our parents to affirm. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before your child a godly example, that you, that you will pray with and for your child, that you will teach your child the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring your child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And then we turn to the congregation and we ask, do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child. <clears throat> and then we ask you to raise your right hand, and thereby you affirming that you will do this. It is important for us as parents to raise up our kids, to teach them the scriptures, to teach them about the Lord Jesus Christ and all the doctrines of, of our church. It's important for us as a church body to come alongside our parents, to teach in Sunday school classes, to give advice to young moms and young dads. We're doing this together. We are called as parents in many places to love and nurture our children, but that's not really what Jesus is trying to tell us in this passage. That all is true, yes, but he's commending something different to us here. Yes, teach your kids, but there's also something we learn from our children that he's pointing out to us here. There's something about our kids. There's an attitude. There's a disposition that they have that he is saying, be like that. And such that are like that are members of the kingdom of God and understand what it means to be a disciple of mine. Because all of us are God's children, aren't we? And so we must come to him as needy and dependent children, just as our own children come to us or our grandchildren come to us as needy and dependent. It's as if Jesus is giving us an object lesson here. The disciples are trying to shoo the little kids away, and Jesus says, no, let them come in my midst. You need to see something. You need to see this object lesson of these children to understand better about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Three points. Number one, we are to come to the kingdom of God like a child. Here's the situation. Children are being brought to Jesus so that he would pronounce a blessing on them. Luke's, Luke's account of this in, ch in chapter 18, verse 15 that he might touch them. It's likely that they were coming in Jesus' midst. He was probably playing with them and picking them up and telling them that he loved them and then putting his hands on their head and pronouncing a benediction upon them, asking that God would bless them and keep them near. The Greek word here for child is a word paidon. It has a very wide range of, of meaning. It can mean little infants that we have over in the nursery right now. It can mean perhaps even as old as 12. So there was likely a lot of different ages of kids running around and playing and in Jesus' presence this, this day. <coughs> There's no indication that was, there was anything magical necessarily about Jesus' touch, as if it, we don't think he was healing at this time. It was just it was something that was sweet and tender that he was doing for these kids. And in doing so, he's showing forth that children are not excluded from this covenant body 
okay? Many in our culture, and perhaps even in biblical culture at this time, have an expression, children are to be seen and not heard. Can they really contribute anything meaningful and positive to society other than just kind of sitting there and looking cute, right? This expression and attitude is clearly not the one that Jesus had. He wants them to come. He wants to include them. He's showing that they are entitled to the blessings of being a member of this kingdom that we talk about. And Jesus rebukes the disciples. He's, he's not just a little bit annoyed at what they're doing. He's indignant. He's angry. Don't hinder them. Let them come to me. I need to bless them, and in the blessing, I'm communicating something to you. Roman culture, we understand, did not think very highly of children. Infanticide was, quite frankly, no big deal particularly for female children. The early Christian church attacked the practice and said that Christians should not dispose of their children. And it was not until 375 A.D. that this practice was outlawed in the Roman world. What Jesus is doing here is really radical. It's not the cultural norm for sure. B.B. Warfield says of this passage that children owe much to the gospel. And they do. And so do we. Because this passage is elevating children as people. It's elevating even their understanding of who Jesus is and the very faith that they have. It takes them seriously. It teaches us adults that we can learn from the ways that they perceive and respond to life. So these parents have come holding out their kids to Jesus. Would you bless them? This is very likely a scene that probably had happened very often and will happen again. He places his hands on them, and he looks up to heaven and asks a blessing upon them from his heavenly Father. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. This is a pivotal passage, I think. Uh, This is maybe a little bit of an aside or a parenthesis, but I think this, this passage is important for our understanding of the covenant family and even implicitly for our understanding of infant baptism. Because have you ever thought about it before? How do we view our children? What are they? I think about this with my littlest one, Miles, who's almost two. Is, is Miles a non-Christian? Would it be right for me to characterize him in that way? It seemed that would basically be the majority of opinion, opinion of evangelicals today. They're, they're a non-Christian. He's never made a profession of faith. He can't at this point. But I don't treat him like a non-Christian. I don't treat him that way. But, but is it right for me to call him a Christian? He hasn't made a profession of faith. He has been baptized. He's a member of a covenant family, yes, but if I call him a Christian, I don't have any proof of that. So what do I do? Well, rightfully, I think, in the Presbyterian Church, we have a third way, a third distinction, a covenant child. That's what Miles is. That's what all of our children are that have been been, um, born into a home of believing parents. He is a covenant child, entitled to all the blessings of God, Jesus is saying that this kingdom is for children. So as a result of our kids being covenant children, we will do two things. Not one, we'll do two. One, we will evangelize our children or our grandchildren. We will teach them the good news of Jesus Christ. We'll tell them how serious sin is. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You are guilty and and you deserve the wrath of a holy God upon you. But then we will tell them about the glory of the cross, that this has been taken care of, that our sin has been given to Jesus, his righteousness has been given to us, and the sin was paid for. God's wrath was satisfied there on the cross. We'll tell them the beauty of forgiveness, 
Our sin has been completely cleansed and washed away and forgiven. And now we have new life in him. So we'll evangelize our kids, but we'll also disciple our kids. We'll do both if it's a covenant child. We'll teach them what it means that you have died to your sin. You can't live that way anymore. You've died to it. But we'll now live unto righteousness. You now have new abilities that you didn't have before. We'll pray with and for them. Our children belong to this kingdom of God. As I said in the beginning, this kingdom, it's wherever we see the will of the king, Jesus, being done, there is the kingdom of God. It grows increasingly as people begin more and more to acknowledge that Jesus is king and put their faith in him. The kingdom of God is found within the church, but it's not the church itself. But the church is the instrument that God uses to grow his kingdom. And children belong to this covenant community. They don't have to wait until they're adults to begin to receive the blessings of it. As I mentioned, Jesus is elevating the status of children in this passage. They are covenant members. It's why we want you as parents and grandparents to bring your kids to worship. We want you to bring them here. Yes, they can go to their Bible lesson as they just did if if they're the, the appropriate age, but we want kids here to experience the blessings of being a covenant member and particularly of this body of Christ. Yes, they can be distracting sometimes. Yes, they can do things that you don't want them to do. They can keep you from paying attention the way you would want to. Yes, they make a noise and everybody turns around and looks at you and you think they're questioning whether or not you're a good parent. All of that happens at times. I know because it happens to me as well. Bring them because as they're here, they're learning. They're learning from you. They're watching you pray. They're listening to you sing. They're watching whether or not you're paying attention to what's going on. They're watching the other adults around them They are being blessed by this. Bring them. It's why, in my opinion, that children's ministry is so vitally important in the life of a local church. And we are very blessed here at First Pres with our children's ministry. I haven't been to a lot of other PCA churches, but I have been to some. And I just want you to know, we're very blessed here. We're blessed with the love and care and concern that Mary Sanchez and Donna Rumpf put into thinking about your kids thinking about their safety, thinking about the things that they learn, thinking about them having fun, thinking about the volunteers and teachers that they want to put involved in teaching your kids and grandkids. We are blessed here. I see them week to week as they think about how do we shepherd these kids in their hearts? How do we raise them appropriately? How do we partner with parents? It's a vital ministry for our kids and for the future of our church. Many children's ministries, even in the PCA, they are underfunded or they're unsupported. But not here. Not here. We're blessed. And we ought to be grateful for that. Because our children are entitled to the benefits of the church. Secondly, we are to receive the kingdom of God like a child. Verse 14 ends with Jesus saying, For to such belongs the kingdom of God. In verse 15 he says, Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. For to such belongs the kingdom of God, receiving the kingdom like a child. So it's not just for children, it's for those who would come like children, who would come in the, with the attitude, with the disposition of a child, as I've said. Because a child is entirely dependent upon the parent. Total trust really is the center of the existence of a child. They know their thing they can't earn. 
They know there are things that they cannot do for themselves. They know they can't reach the cookies on the top of the shelf, so they ask you for help. They know that there's things they can't do, but for some reason when we get to be adults, we stop thinking that anymore. And Jesus is saying the true disciple understands the neediness that we need to feel with our faith, with our relationship with him. It's why group after group up to this point in the Gospel of Mark have come to Jesus and not seen it because they've trusted in themselves. Jesus is constantly confronting the Pharisees, and in chapter 7, he finally looks at them and says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You don't think you have a need. You know I'm important, uh, but not that important. You think what you do is more important. All interspersed through this are stories of the man with the withered hand or the man who's who's paralyzed. These show the need that we really have. These physical needs are pointing to a spiritual need that we all have. We do not exclude children from what we do. They're a lesson of what true faith looks like. Not childish faith, but childlike faith. You want to know the secret to faith? Watch a child. It's why we have them come up here every service. It's not just some cutesy thing that we can do to say, oh, we want to include kids, so why don't we have them come up here and pray for them? No, it's, we're showing that they are included in what we do. We love them. We want to pray for them because we care about them. To receive the kingdom of God means to accept it, as one commentator says, with genuine, trustful simplicity, with unassuming humility. Jesus is saying that a child has a simple, humble, unquestioning manner in which he or she offers what is accepted to them. Oddly enough, uh, it's in the times when I discipline my two sons that I see this illustrated most clearly. I realize that my boys will not always respond the way that I'm I'm about to illustrate for you, but for now they do, and for now I see this pictured in what they do. I administer the discipline to Nathan or to Miles. They're upset at what has just happened, but what do they immediately do? And I bet your kids do this up to a certain age. They've been disciplined, they're upset, and they look back to me and they do this. Because they know that the very hand that has just brought discipline to them is also the very hand that's going to bring comfort to them to make them feel better to scoop them up, to pat them on the back, to whisper in their ear how much I love them and I care for them. The same is true for us. And, but what our typical response is, I'm angry with you, God, I begrudge you for what you've done, and you don't really understand me. Do you even care and love for me? Because if you did, you wouldn't have let this come into my life, this hurtful thing, this tragedy, this failure. But we would do well to look at him in the same manner and lift our arms up to him and say, would you comfort me because I know you brought this hurtful thing in my life. And while I don't understand it, I know that you're the God who cares for me and you're good. It's that same childlike trust, even in the face of not understanding something. Because Jesus is saying, no one can come to the kingdom unless you receive it this way because you won't understand it. It's not childishness, it's childlikeness. R.C. Sproul makes the distinction quite well, I think. He says believers must be childlike in that they trust and believe in God without hesitation, just like kids trust their parents. However, Christians cannot be childish, never having anything more than an elementary knowledge of the faith. Young and old alike must be growing in their knowledge of God, trusting him like a child. 
while maturing in their doctrinal comprehension. The trust is like a child. The doctrinal understanding is hardly childish. It's comprehensive. It's something we're supposed to be increasing and learning more and understanding more. But in the end, with our life, we trust. It's a simple trust. It's a childlike trust. You know, as Presbyterians, I think we can often struggle with this. We lose sight of this. We lose sight of the childlikeness of faith that we're to have. Maybe it's because we want to praise ourselves. Maybe it's because we find childlikeness to be somehow beneath us or inadequate. We can have a great humility problem. We focus so much upon doctrine and theology, upon exegesis and hermeneutics. We love our books and our commentaries, and all that's wonderful. I'm not saying they deserve our time and attention. But sometimes it comes at the expense of a simple trust, a simple trust in God and who he is. Because what happens when we grow older? We can become hardened to things. People wrong us and we become less trusting. As we grow older, people disappoint us. We fail. Tragedy happens. Disappointment. And so we become embittered or cynical or angry, and pretty soon the only person that we trust is ourselves. But when we're young, it's just not so. We can often get lost not wanting to have a simple dependence. But that is what we're to have, just like a child. We need to say, God, I trust you. I believe in you. I love you. I don't understand everything in my life. I wish this world was not the way that it was. But I know that you're good. And I know that your providential care is over everything. You know, a child doesn't worry about their next meal. They don't worry about if they're going to have a warm bed to sleep in. They don't wor- worry about if, whether or not they can get a tender hug and a warm smile. They know that they will from their loving parents. And the same should be of us, a disciple of his. One of my favorite hymns is, um, oh goodness, I have the, I have the, the hymn here, but I, I didn't write the name down, and now I've forgotten. It's one of my favorite ones, and I can't think of the name of it. <laughs> Rock of Ages, there we go. Um, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. That is true of us as followers of God. Thirdly and lastly, we are blessed by the king because we are a child of God. We are blessed because we're a child of God. Jesus has rebuked the disciples for hindering the children. Now the children come, and now he blesses them. He pronounces this benediction, as I mentioned before. You know, this was a pretty cool scene, quite frankly. I, I think it's likely that this happened several times and probably left an indelible mark upon all those who were blessed and even the parents and disciples who witnessed this. You know, we often get to see, as I mentioned earlier, the sacrament of baptism here at First Pres. Parents to affirm what they believe and how they are going to raise their children. And the children are blessed because they're now a part of this covenant community. And in obedience to God's word, they have a sacrament put upon them. We don't do this because we think it saves the children. We presume nothing upon the sacrament. The sacrament is in obedience to God's word. God's word tells us to do this. It's not on the basis of presumption in any way. All of God's promises require the response of faith from the person. And while the covenant family is by no means the exclusive way that God works, because some of, that's, some of you have a testimony different than that, but it does seem to be the normative way that God saves and adds to the kingdom. 
So as a result, let us strive from our children and grandchildren's earliest years to bring them to Christ, to have them acquainted to the Scriptures, the doctrines that we hold so dear that come from the Scriptures. Let us pray with our children and grandchildren. Pray for them, that they would be blessed. Um, Fathers, I have, I guess, a challenge or an encouragement for you tonight. This may seem a little bit strange, though after first service, I hear that this is a practice of some of you here. Tonight, fathers, tuck your children in bed. Don't let mom do it. Fathers, you do it, okay? And pronounce a blessing upon your children. Place your hands on their head, and you can even use the benediction that we often use here to close our services from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Even if they're teenagers, pronounce a blessing upon them. Because this is what we want for them, right? We want them to be blessed, the Lord to hold them near. We want them to walk with the Lord all the days of their life. We're asking him to remember his promises to his covenant child. Lord, would, would you remember? Would you give faith? The sign, that, the sign of the covenant that was put upon them, will you seal those truths now within my child that I love so dear? They aren't outsiders, they're insiders. And now a question for all of us individually. How would you characterize your faith this morning? Are you presuming on God's grace? Do you just presume that he loves you and and has great things for you? Is it tied to only the things that you know? Do you come to him with maybe some self-importance or self-reliance? Are you constantly reminding God of all the things that you've done for him, thereby maybe you thinking you have earned something? In Matthew 18, a passage I quoted just a little bit ago, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who's the best? Who's going to be the greatest? And so Jesus is there probably sitting around in a circle listening to him. He invites a little child. Little child, come over here for just a minute. And he puts him in their midst. And he says... Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He said, guys, you've missed it completely. You're arguing about who's the greatest. I'll tell you who's the greatest. Here, come here. Come here, little three-year-old. Let me, let me show you who's the greatest. Was the three-year-old the greatest? No, it was the humility of that child that they were to emulate. Stop arguing about who's the best. Jesus in chapter 16 and 17 leading up to 18 in, chapter, in, in Matthew, he's just talked about, I'm going to die. I'm going to be sacrificed, and all of you who've been close to me, you're going to suffer as a result of that, as a result of your relationship with me. And now you're arguing about who's the greatest. You're missing the point here. The point about being great is humbling yourself. The point about being really important is being a servant. It's why I think it's no, it, it's, uh, it's no coincidence that the story of the rich young ruler comes right after our passage this morning. Jesus has just talked about the faith needed of a little child. And in verse 17, the next word said, the rich young ruler runs up to Jesus and says, what must I do? It's a great contrast. Nothing. You receive. You receive the kingdom of God. You don't do anything to earn it. You don't do anything for God to love you. You say, thank you, God. Thank you for what you have done. Even the requirement unto salvation, which is faith, is something that we also receive. We receive it from him. Salvation belongs to those who would humble themselves before God like this little child. 
Paul says of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ had something he could boast in. He's the son of the father, yet he didn't. His whole life was about humbling himself. It's, it's a theological term we call the humiliation of Christ. He left heaven, he left the riches of heaven, and took on human form to live amongst us and serve us and love us. The night he was betrayed, he washes the feet of the disciples, one who's going to deny him, the second who's going to betray him. He humbled himself and served. He, he's emulating what he wants us to do here in this passage. He emptied himself, made himself nothing so you and I might be rich. He's faithful despite our unfaithfulness. He died that we might live. He was brought low so that we might be lifted up. He is the very thing that he wants from us. Do you see your need this morning? I hope if, if you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, you, you see that we aren't a bunch of people sitting around having figured it out, and one day maybe you will too. We know that we're needy and dependent on God. We need his love and affection. We need his saving work on the cross. We need him, and we've come together to acknowledge that and to worship that great God that we serve. To the Christian, you need this reminder that nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I claim. Have you placed your life in his care, and do you rest calmly in that care that he provides? I like how the Jesus Storybook Bible comments on this story. It says, no matter how big you grow, never grow up so much that you lose your child's heart, full of trust in God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, that we would never lose the childlikeness that we once had. Lord, that we would always trust you. We would always be a needy child before you, dependent upon you, that we would grow in the knowledge and understanding that we need, Lord, but that our trust would always be that you are good, you're our Father, you hold us near, you love us, you will guide and order our steps in our life, and in return, Lord, we would give you all of ourselves, our praise, our adoration, our understanding, our whole selves. Lord, would you be with us now as we go from here, that we would go encouraged in your word, challenged by your word, and that we would shine our light that others might see how wonderful you are and come to you as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.